If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is, I don't know that I would say it's a text as, as, a, as much as a jumping off point uh, for what we'll look at today. The first verse of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This year at the church on Melrose, we have engaged in a project of reading through the Bible this year together. We send out uh, what is to be read every day, and we began at Genesis, and we're going to work our way through to Revelation. Several weeks ago, I spoke on Leviticus because we had reached the point in the project where we were beginning to read Leviticus, which oftentimes discourages people and presents difficulties, and they sort of get bogged down into sort of perhaps help you get over the hump I spoke about it but in the meantime other matters have come up and so now we're in the fourth sermon in a series of reading the Old Testament and uh, particularly in Exodus and Leviticus at one point I hope I've made it clear um, that we cannot understand the New Testament as we should without the Old Testament and here today at the beginning of this sermon um, I would have you consider what we see here just in the first chapter of the Gospel of John and how it illustrates this. I've told you before that uh, I was told in my younger years that when someone becomes a Christian, when they are a new Christian, you should say to them, read the Gospel of John. That's what you should read first. Um, But let's look briefly, very quickly, at John chapter 1. We have the first verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, David Bentley Hart has recently done a new translation of the New Testament. And in the postscript he writes, There may perhaps be no passage in the New Testament more resistant to simple translation into another tongue than the first 18 verses, the prologue of the Gospel of John. So, If it's so difficult, how are we to understand John chapter 1, or the rest of John for that matter? Well, I think it helps us if we go back to the first verse of the Old Testament, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And with this background, or this backstory, if you wish, we begin, begin, I think we begin to get a sense of what John is intending to do. Not that we will fully understand what is being said, but we have a starting point, a point of comparison. And hopefully we have an awareness that the Gospel of John wasn't written in a vacuum. And it should not be read in a vacuum, but as part of a whole. So if you look at verse number 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. And some translations have that. And one might say, well, I know what that means. Pitching a tent, that means you go camping. Or you have a short-term a place to say you, you don't have a house so you live in a tent uh, it's not permanent it's not a dwelling place it's just a tent but in reality we need the Old Testament particularly Exodus and Leviticus for us to understand that in the Old Testament God did pinch his, pitch his tent the tabernacle in the midst of his people and now in the New Testament God in the flesh comes and if you wish pitches his tent he lives among his people and preaches the good news Verse number 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What law? And and who is Moses? These questions require a knowledge of the Old Testament for an answer. Verse number 19, 
Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Verse 21, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Well, who is Elijah? Well, if you don't have the Old Testament, then you don't know who that is. And then verse number 29, which is perhaps after verse number one, the most familiar verse. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Without the Old Testament, one might easily mistake or make the mistake of thinking of a lamb as a young sheep, something that is cuddly, something that is cute, something to hold. Um, But we know from the Old Testament that lambs were part of the sacrificial system, beginning with Passover and then um, when the tabernacle was set up, lambs were to be slain as a sin offering. Certainly something very different than a cuddly little animal that you might want to play with. And then in verse number 41, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. Um, The English translations don't help us much here, but the word Messiah, the word Christ, they both mean the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, we learn who is anointed, the high priest, kings are anointed, So when we hear of Jesus as the anointed one, okay, now it begins to make more sense. As we've seen the last couple weeks, it is in Exodus and Leviticus that we learn the following, that it is the Lord who determined how Israel would worship him. He is the one who set up the system. Secondly, it's not a question of sacrifice versus no sacrifice. Everybody sacrifices, okay? Everybody has a God to whom they offer something. God tells his people, I am your God, this is how you will worship me. Thirdly, we saw that worship is costly. If you read the first five chapters of Leviticus, all of these animals that are being slaughtered, this is costly matter. But this is what God set up. Fourthly, we saw the significance of sin. Sin is not a small thing, or don't worry about it, no biggie. Uh, Actually, sin is a fairly large issue. Thus, you have the sin offering and the guilt offering. But lastly, it all points to Jesus and his sacrifice and his death. But as we've seen, most people would rather not speak of the death of Jesus as a sacrifice. In fact, they'd rather not talk about the death of Jesus at all. And they're somewhat disturbed that so much of the Old Testament, the first five books, is is dedicated to this issue of sacrifice. I mean, part of Exodus and much of Leviticus is about sacrificing. And it's bloody, and you have body parts, and all these things, and it just seems unnecessary. But as we saw last week, one-fourth to one-third of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about the death of Jesus. We would rather hear the parables, we want to hear about his birth, we want to hear about the miracles that he did, and when he fed the 5,000, and the parables, all these things we want to hear about, And yet one-fourth, and let's say one-fourth, that's the smaller number, 25% of the Gospels are dedicated to the issue of his passion and death. The cross is central to the Christian faith. But again, not everyone is comfortable with it. Paul had to deal with this with the Corinthians, who were happy enough to be Christians as long as they didn't have to talk about Jesus being crucified. He writes to them, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. 
but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Simply put, the Corinthians were embarrassed by all this talk of the cross. They would rather ignore it, and many today, I think, would prefer to do the same. But as one author put it, if avoidance of suffering is the aim of religion, it is no wonder that so many are drawn to its various manifestations and repelled by the cross. If you think that faith is to somehow get you past, you know, somehow avoid difficulties, um, then the cross really doesn't fit within your way of thinking. Because Jesus did not avoid the cross, he went willingly and was put to death. It's not surprising to me that the Gnostics, we talked about last week, reject all, most if not all of the Old Testament. They see the material world as lesser, um, as contaminated. And they would rather talk about spirituality. So when Leviticus talks about blood and kidneys and the fat on the kidneys and the body parts of the breast being waved, yeah. Uh, people would rather talk about spiritual things, what they feel inside, their heart. Follow your heart, if you wish. Um, so some people may speak of the death of Jesus, um, but they won't mention that he was crucified. And they don't see him as a sacrifice. And so the death of Jesus has, in many ways, in the last 2,000 years, been domesticated. It has been romanticized, idealized, and misappropriated. He's seen as a martyr, perhaps, or a victim, a victim of circumstances, rather than it's God's sacrifice of atonement, as we heard in the promise of forgiveness today. The earthiness, if you wish, of the death of Jesus has been pushed aside. And I think in many ways Jesus is seen as almost ahistorical. People don't talk about his historical background or anything. They just see him as this wonderful guy who said wonderful things and unfortunately was put to death. But then God raised him and so everything's cool. Um, a preacher has observed that the New Testament tells us very little about what went on in Jesus' mind, what he was thinking. There are times when we're given insight, but for the most part we are not told. But this preacher went on to say, if you want to know what went on in Jesus' mind, read the Old Testament. This is something it is argued that every biblical scholar knows but seldom says. We tend to forget that what we call the Old Testament was the only Bible that Jesus, Paul, and the earliest Christians had. Not only so, but the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms were known to them by heart in a fashion that today we can hardly imagine. There are many things that we do not know about Jesus, but of this we can be sure. His mind and heart were shaped by intimate, continuous interaction with the scriptures. And if we are to have the mind of Christ, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, we need to know the Old Testament. But I don't think this is what people want. It's too much work. I mean, first, just to read the Old Testament is a lot of work, but then to know the Old Testament... Um, and so without even articulating it, I think people basically want Jesus to be the way they imagine him to be. They shape Jesus into the, the image that they want him to be. And not a pagan way. I mean, it's, you know, they use Christian words and Christian concepts. Um, but not in a biblical way. I think if you were to ask the average American Christian to describe God, 
you would probably hear words like loving, compassionate, merciful, welcoming, accepting, inclusive. Very few people would use the word just, that God is just. And yet, when you look at the Old Testament, the scripture that Jesus, Paul, and the earliest Christians knew, we see God revealed as righteous and just. And by the way, in Hebrew, those two words are the same word. Righteous and just. This forms a large part of the prophetic literature. And it is essential, I would say, to the faith of God's people in the Old Testament. Let me just read to you some passages. Isaiah 5.16 But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. God's justice and his righteousness. And then in Second Chronicles 19, we have the story of Jehoshaphat, one of the kings of Judah, who sends out people uh, to serve. He says, Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and turned them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for men, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. These judges were told you are to be just because that is how God is. God is with you when you make these judgments. And God's justice is not some vague idea about like being nice, you know, being fair. In the Old Testament it's very specific. Exodus 23.6 Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. So when a poor person goes to court, there should be justice. Deuteronomy 25 Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as pledge. Somebody wants to, A widow is out of money. She has to feed her kids and you lend her something. Don't take something as collateral. It's very, very specific. What is just and what is unjust. I think at this point we need to top, stop and take a moment and, and take a deep breath because I think the idea of God as just may be disturbing to us. But would you prefer a God who doesn't really care what people do? Who isn't bothered by injustice or deception or violence? Of course not. We want God to stand for what is right. and This means that God must be just. Because justice is a central part of God's character, he has made it known that injustice is something that he is opposed to. Injustice of any kind, God opposes. I'll only mention one passage. This is from Jeremiah 5. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice. The cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Again, very specific. These people are unjust because they don't take care of those in need. In contrast, we read of God, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. This is our God. It's also part of the messianic prophecies, the messianic message. When Jesus comes and announces the kingdom of God, the Old Testament prophecies, the promises, shape what it is that he will do. 
Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And there it is, righteous and just together. This is what Messiah will be. A similar passage that we hear at Christmas time is found in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. At this point, some of you might be thinking I have drifted seriously off topic. I thought we were talking about reading uh, the Old Testament. We need to understand the New Testament by the Old Testament. Let me say something that may shock you, but bear with me and we'll work through this. Forgiveness in and of itself is not the essence of the Christian faith, though many believe it to be so. Forgiveness must be understood in its relationship to justice if the Christian gospel is to be understood as it should be. To see this, to appreciate this, we need to begin by acknowledging that in our world something is terribly wrong and it cries out to be made right. It may seem obvious, but I think it's something we need to say. Living in where, when and where we do, we may in fact lose sight of this. One writer put it this way, in spite of all evidence, and there's plenty of it, modern day Americans tr- keep trying to convince ourselves that happiness is the natural state of our species. We are sometimes naive about the dark side of human nature. Our escapist mentality is always at work, or so it seems, readjusting reality uh, to throw out the, the difficult parts of life, the things that we don't want to think about. And when we do this, then the cross of Jesus is lost. It's put aside, it's diminished in some ways. The message of the cross is that only the creator of the universe can make perfect justice come about in a world that he has created. For us as American Christians, there are at least two challenges here. The first is, in the midst of a feel-good culture, we have to contend with what the Bible says about human beings, that we are fallen. Ecclesiastes 9, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes them all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Back to Jeremiah and Jeremiah 4. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. And then the familiar passage in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who could understand it? Now some would say, yeah, Damon, we know those verses, but those are Old Testament verses. That's when God was really angry, and then he sent Jesus, and he's, he's full of love, and so we should sort of set those aside. Um, besides, aren't we supposed to love ourselves? Aren't we supposed to have self-esteem? I would argue that if you look at the 21st century, 
and we are 18 years into it now. Um, forget the 20th century, because everyone's, man, it's just horrendous. The Holocaust, the genocides, let's set that aside. Here, even in the 21st century, what the scripture says about human nature seems to be true. Just this past week in Florida, we were once again reminded of the evil that people are capable of doing. The second challenge for us as American Christians is that we need to realize that all human beings are equally in need of justice and mercy. I think we tend to divide the human race like these people need justice and these people over here need mercy. And part of the reason we do that is we don't realize that justice and mercy are connected and we don't see the connection, we don't see the relation to them. It's not always clear. And I think part of this is because we have twisted, we have tweaked the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not enough. There must be justice. When we look at the cross, when we see the sacrifice of Jesus, we see two things, that something is wrong and needs to be made right. And the cross is not simply, uh, it's not forgiveness pure and simple, but it is God's setting the world and making it right. I think what we think justice is, is oftentimes mistaken. Let me ask you, when you think of heaven, do you think of the word justice? Most people think of justice when it involves themselves, when it's about themselves. Even though we say and justice for all, I think in reality we're usually thinking and justice for me even in our conversations. But when we look at the cross, we see God's justice and we see God's righteousness at the same time in the sacrifice of his son. And in the cross, we see the power of God to make things right. That is what the cross is about. This, by the way, explains, and we've talked about this before, what we see throughout the Psalms, but two come to mind, Psalm 96 and 98. At the end of Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Why, are they, why is all of creation singing for joy? They will sing before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. This is repeated in Psalm 98 in a shorter form. Let the sea resound in everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. A wonderful picture. And let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Why will creation clap its hands and sing for joy? Because God comes to judge. Well, that's that sounds almost masochistic. I mean, that sounds terrible. Why would you be God? Because in judging, God makes things right. That's what justice is about. Justice isn't simply punishment. There may be an aspect of that. But it is, in fact, to make things right. And when we look at Jesus on the cross as sacrifice, he's not a victim, he's not a martyr. He is God's sacrifice, God's justice, God's righteousness to make things right. I would argue, and I've done so in this series, that we cannot fully understand or appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus unless we have read and understood to some degree 
what we find in the Old Testament. And what we find is that sin is costly. Things need to be made right. Just one aspect. Consider the laws regarding theft in the Old Testament. In Exodus 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. A thief must certainly make restitution, but if he has nothing, he must be sold to pay for his theft. He's sold into slavery if he cannot pay what he has stolen. If the stolen animal is found alive in his possession, whether an ox or donkey or sheep, he must pay back double. And then in Leviticus 6, the Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him, or left in his care, or stolen, or if he cheats him, or if he finds lost property and lies about it, or if he swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin that the people may do, when he thus sins and become guilty, he must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion, or what was entrusted to him, or the lost property he found. And whatever it was he swore falsely about, he must make restitution in full. Add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. As a penalty, he must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord and he will be given, be forgiven any, for any of those things he did that made him guilty. Well, that sounds rather harsh. I mean, if you steal one, you have to pay back five or four. What, what about the whole forgive and forget business? I thought you should just, yeah, it's, it's all good. shouldn't worry about it. But now again, we come to the heart of the matter. Forgiveness in and of itself is not the essence of the Christian faith. Forgiveness must be understood in its relationship to justice. And one of the keys to seeing this is the book of Leviticus. The structure of the book of Leviticus is what is known in literature as a chiasm. Um, Simply put, you have A, B, C, D, C, B, A. That is, the book ends where it begins. And in the book of Leviticus, by the way, the high point, the pivotal point, that is the most important thing in what's going on. So in the book of Leviticus, you have the rituals that are mentioned at the beginning. You have the priesthood. That's where uh, Nadab and Abihu are killed. But then things are made right. You have purity, and then you have the Day of Atonement. Then you have purity, you have the priesthood, and you have ritual. The high point, the central point, the pivotal aspect is in fact the Day of Atonement. And what was the Day of Atonement about? Justice and mercy. Justice and atonement. In fact, we saw it in our promise of forgiveness today from Romans 3. The high priest was to offer a series of sacrifices for himself, for his household, and then for the children of Israel. And he was to take blood and sprinkle it inside the holiest place on the mercy seat, or in some translations it's called the atonement cover. Let me read to you several verses. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. 
And then there's another animal, a goat, in which he puts his hands on it and he confesses the sins of Israel. And then the man takes the goat out into the wilderness and releases him. And here we see justice. The animal must die. This animal must carry the sin. But we also see mercy. And we see this in the death of Jesus as well. It is not a case, the cross is not a case of forgive and forget. A price must be paid. There must be justice. As one writer put it, the wrath of God, which plays such a large role in both the Old and New Testaments, can be embraced because it is wrapped up in God's mercy. We like to think of God's mercy, but God's justice is there, and it is wrapped up in his mercy. When you read the story of Israel in the Old Testament, um, you see their predicament as made up of two parts. It's also true of every human being, but we see it specifically in the story of Israel. First of all, they were in captivity. They were slaves in Egypt. They needed to be delivered. And secondly, they were sinners. They were guilty of breaking God's law, and their sins needed to be absolved or remitted. Well, in the book of Exodus, we read about them being delivered out of captivity. If you wish, it is salvation. They are freed and they are brought out of Egypt. God delivers them with a mighty hand. We see this in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus and in Leviticus, we see that they are guilty. They have broken God's law and so they must offer sacrifices. It is an issue of guilt that must be dealt with. So you have the burnt offering, you have the sin offering, the guilt offering. And all of this points to Jesus. It isn't an ollie-ollie income free. This isn't forgive and forget. There must be justice. And this is what we see with Jesus on the cross. See, the reality is something is wrong and needs to be made right. And if we talk about forgiveness and redemption, and we should, they must be put in the proper context. God is not in favor of impunity. God doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. In fact, his son paid the penalty for our sins. The words justice, righteousness, and justification, which seem like very New Testament words, particularly with justification, actually come from the same group of words in Greek. They are all related. They're not sort of separate concepts. When we read of the righteousness of God, we're also reading of the justice of God. That is, God making things right. That's what justice is about. Now, humans cannot give perfect justice. We cannot, if somebody has killed someone, we cannot bring that person to life. And so justice is, falls short, whatever the penalty is. But God is just, and he, in fact, can make things right. But God's righteousness and his justice are not static qualities, that they're just sort of there. They're like stones, that they don't move and they don't breathe. They're just there. Um, They are, in fact, God's ongoing power. God is at work bringing justice by his righteousness into the world. You see, justice is not some abstract idea some abstract concept. Justice brings deliverance, just as Israel was taken out of Egypt, and it brings forgiveness, as we see in the sacrificial system. And all of these because of God's mercy. So like Israel, we were in bondage to sin, and God delivers us. 
And like Israel, we are sinners and are in need of forgiveness. And both deliverance and forgiveness come through the cross, through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Just one more thing before I stop. Were it not for the mercy of God, we would not have a correct perspective of sin. Without the grace of God and the mercy of God surrounding us, we would not have the proper perspective from which to view sin. And the reality is, if we talk about sin, as we should, after a while, we will find ourselves drawn into doxology and praise to God because of what Jesus has done. That doesn't always happen. Oftentimes when we begin to talk about sin, we sort of go into a downward spiral because it's all about us and the bad things I've done or other people. And just you go into this downward spiral of how terrible people are or the things that they've done. But when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we look at the cross of Christ, we begin to see how costly sin is and that Jesus paid the cost. And that is justice and that is righteousness. But again, without the Old Testament, I think, I think we're flying blind here. We're sort of making it up as we go. We read about this wonderful man who did all these things and then isn't it terrible that people killed him? No, we need the Old Testament. We need... Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to help us understand what it is that Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, as Christians, we want to be known as people who forgive. And we should. But oftentimes, in this place this time we say not a word about justice and so our, our, all our talk of forgiveness seems like impunity it, it doesn't really matter but sin is a terrible thing it is a costly thing we see it in Leviticus but we see it in the gospels as well that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for atonement to pay for our sins. I pray that as a congregation, as we read through the Bible together, we begin to have more and more a sense of how it all fits together. How that we need to know the Old Testament, to read the Old Testament, to appreciate the gospel, the good news. There seems to be plenty of bad news in the Old Testament, but it certainly points the way to the good news in Jesus Christ. Though it frightens us sometimes, we are thankful that you are just and that you are at work to make things right. You're a God of mercy, but you're also a God of justice. You are the righteous God. May your spirit bring these thoughts to our mind in the day to come. May we meditate on them and then rejoice and praise you for what you have done through your son.
how you have given us new life. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.